Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Father Ten Boom, God's Man by Corey Ten Boom, and this is the last chapter for that uh, book. But it, we are uh, given permission by Light Trails Publishing Company and the, the Ten Boom Foundation. And we will begin with Chapter 12, Father and His Grandchildren. Father loved children, and they loved him. His three children and one son had grown up and become more like teammates than people who needed his help. But there were other little ones, his grandchildren. He wrote about them in his notebook. As to my children, I have the glad assurance that they belong to the Lord. It is my burning desire, more than I could ever express, that one day I will meet my grandchildren, whom I love so much before the throne of God. Mother's health deteriorated soon after my sister Nolly married. Mother had so enjoyed William and Teen's little ones. Her visits to their home were high points in her life. Happily, Nolly did not move far away. Flip, her husband, became the director of a school that Father helped start on the other side of Harlem, and they lived near it with their six children. Father was on the school board and worked closely with his son-in-law. The children were a source of joy to him, and he went to visit Nolly and her family every Sunday afternoon. A year before we were arrested, Nellie was in prison because two Jews were found in her home. She was taken to a prison in Amsterdam in a prison van in which she had to stand in a small square compartment. It was pitch dark, but suddenly there was a beam of light and she wrote the words, Jesus is the victor, on the wall with a lead pencil she had hidden under her hair. It says here in a picture, it says, Casper wrote his wife, I become more and more convinced that the Lord granted me an overwhelming privilege when he gave you to me. Cornelia Timboom passed away on October 17, 1921, at the age of 63. Nolly was taken to a huge police station in Amsterdam, where they pushed her into a basement cell without a light. She started to sing, and when she heard a voice saying, However can you sing? She realized she was not alone. The other woman started to cry, and Nolly said, Don't lose courage. God is still on the throne, and we are not alone. Nolly was later released through the help of a German doctor. I seldom saw Father so happy as the moment he held her in his arms again. Most of the people who are mentioned in these old letters are no longer alive, but I talked to Peter and Bob and two of Father's grandchildren, and they gladly share their memories of him. Gladly, Lord. One day, when Bob was a small boy, he accompanied his grandfather to a bus stop. As they waited for the bus to come, Bob said, Grandpa, you're so old, and you may have to die one day. Do you really want to go to heaven? Oh, my boy, was the reply. I have such dear children and such lovely grandchildren, and there are so many beautiful things to enjoy in this world, so I really don't want to go yet. But, Bob, if God should call me today and say, Casper, come, I would answer, Gladly, Lord. First the help, then the talk. How are your mathematics coming, Bob? Father asked his grandson one day. I pray for them every day. Bob looked into this gentle, smiling face and thought, Does Grandpa take time to pray for my mathematics? Father was very good at encouraging his grandchildren, at stimulating positive things in other people. Once Bob came to the watch shop and showed Father a beautiful illustrated book they had just bought at Mr. Von Hoot's store. Father admired it and asked, Were you able to buy this nice book? Oh, Bob said, Mr. Von Hart told me I could pay off a little every month. I will have it paid for in six months. 
At this, Father went to the money box in the workshop and took out the amount needed to pay for the book in full and gave it to Bob. Here, he said, take this and run to the shop to pay for the book. Promise me one thing, however, that you will never again buy anything without paying for it straight away. In that way, you will be kept from getting into debt. Bob appreciated the fact that Father gave him the money first and then gave the lecture. Proverbious Day Proverbious Day took place once a year. It was a tradition Father started, and his grandchildren looked forward to the great occasion for weeks. When at last the big day arrived, they would all stand waiting in front of one of Harlem's special Proverbious restaurants. Finally, Father would appear, all smiles. He took the children inside, and the feast began. Proverbious are little pancakes served with butter and powdered sugar. What a treat it was for the grandchildren, and how Father enjoyed seeing them feast on this delicious dish. He was every inch a grandfather. Father gave his grandchildren a feeling of security. There was something rock-like about him that made them feel safe. Peter remembers the hours that he spent sitting on a little stool in the workshop, learning to type on the old office typewriter. He loved the atmosphere of the shop, imagining that hundreds of clocks hung on the walls around him. The sound of the ticking and the chiming and the sight of his grandfather bending over his workbench are still very clear in his mind. The grandchildren never saw Father angry. Peter once asked, Does Grandpa ever get angry? No, he said, but he does get a little annoyed if the soup is served too hot to eat. The Queen's Day The highlight of life in Harlem was a yearly celebration of the Queen's birthday. Everybody dressed up and the children wore costumes. A platform covered with beautiful carpets and flowers would be erected on the Grote Mark, the large marketplace in the center of town. The mayor, the councillors, and leading townspeople will all assemble on the platform, and everyone else gathered in the marketplace. Often on such occasions, Father was a special guest of the mayor, and the place was reserved for him on the platform. On this particular Queen's Day, Father rode to the marketplace on an open horse-drawn carriage. Hundreds of schoolchildren lined the streets, singing and shouting and waving their flags at the old man with a silk top hat. Suddenly, a shrill, excited child's voice could be heard above the noise. Grandfather! Grandfather! The coachman was ordered to stop, and the whole procession came to a standstill. Father had spotted his little grandson, Peter, and he quickly motioned to the boy to climb up into the carriage. When they arrived at the marketplace, Father took Peter by the hand stepped through the crowd to the platform and up the steps on the beautiful carpet. The little boy knew he would never have been allowed on that wonderful place by himself, but now he was firmly holding his grandfather's hand. The policeman in front stepped back respectfully for Harlem's grand old man and his grandson. Peter remembers this incident as an example of what God does for his children. Of ourselves, we have no right to a victorious free life or to eternal life in heaven's glory. Yet God stooped down to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. He took us by the hand and became the way for us to reach a place we could never reach by ourselves. Mr. Kahn. Father's shop was halfway down the Bielstraat, and a little further on, on the opposite side of the street, was another watch shop. It belonged to Mr. Kahn, a Jew. The grandchildren were fascinated by Mr. Kahn's shop window. It was always full of bright, shiny watches. In between, there were advertisements announcing super special bargains. A slogan was mounted above the shop. It was a clever play of words in Dutch that means only Khan can do what Khan can do. Mr. Khan sold many more watches than father. 
One day, Peter accompanied Father on one of his walks through town. He loved doing this because people would often stop to look back at the dignified old man, and Peter was very proud of his grandfather. As they walked through the Bailstrat, they passed Mr. Kahn's workshop. Peter looked at Father and said, Grandpa, Mr. Kahn is your competitor, isn't he? Father stopped and thought for a moment. No, my boy, Mr. Kahn is not my competitor. He is my colleague. But do not forget, he belongs to God's chosen people. Peter was too small to understand about the Jewish people, but he understood that the Jews must be very special people because of what he heard from his grandfather so many times. Your feet on the rock. Father had a personal concern for each one of his grandchildren, and he did his part in preparing them for life. He rarely preached to them. His life spoke much louder than his words. Only once does Peter remember Father dealing with him directly about the need of salvation. Peter was 17, and his whole interest was focused on his musical career. He thought he had no time for the things of God. One requirement for obtaining his diploma as an organist was that he had to work in an organ factory for a few weeks. Before he left, Father had a talk with Peter. My boy, he said, you are going to have a new experience. You'll be working among many different kinds of people in the factory. You'll be exposed to temptations there which you have not had before. I am very concerned about how you will be able to resist. Peter, you need to make sure that you have your feet on the rock, that you know Christ is your Savior. Peter was not too willing to listen to his grandfather, but father's words stuck in his mind, and he was not able to forget the incident. About a year later, in disobedience of Nazi orders, Peter played the Behelmus, Holland's national anthem, in the church where he was an organist. He was put in prison for doing this. During that month, behind bars, God spoke to Peter again, and again through a little New Testament smuggled into him by his mother. It was then that Peter opened his heart to the Lord Jesus and received him as his personal Savior. Father's prayer had a part in preparing Peter for this experience. The future is perfectly clear. In the last letter of Father's, which we have in our possession, was written to one of his grandchildren. It was dated December the 23rd, 1943, and it gave us a little glimpse of what would come on in the Baye just two months before the Gestapo found out about the hiding place. My greatly loved grandson, although I'm quite lazy when it comes to letter writing, I want to answer your letter. There is not much news here. The war continues to rage outside. From that side, we are shaken and plagued by all kinds of sad and trembling rumors. On the other hand, here inside the house, we rejoice in a great many glorious experiences. We are protected and blessed here by a most extraordinary providence. Your aunts and I are enjoying good health, and we have enough to eat. Yes, when I think it over, we are enjoying abundance. I have nothing to complain about. I am sorry I can do so little work on my watches. I am too weak to work much, and my hands are not always steady. But after all, I've had time in my shop, and the new life I am now living is also good. I receive every day as an undeserved gift. I only hope that I will be able to enjoy seeing with all my faculties the deliverance of our people and our fatherland. At any rate, I have so much to be thankful for. I am enjoying God's favor, and the future is perfectly clear. The School of Faith at the time Father wrote Bob this letter, Peter was hiding in a few streets away from the Bailstrat. He had to stay inside during the day because the German soldiers picked up all the young men and sent them to Germany to help in the arms industry. The only time Peter dared to leave his hiding place was in the evening. By walking through few narrow streets, 
he could reach the alley which led to the side door of the Bayer. On the evening of February 28, 1944, Peter took his back route to the Bayer, intending to enjoy the companionship of the house and practice his piano. At the side door of the watch shop, he rang the bell three times so we would know it was somebody from the family. A man opened the door to an unusually darkened hallway. You had better go upstairs. There are visitors in the dining room, the man said. Peter climbed the winding stairway and reached the large front room where the piano was. Some men who were unknown to him were sitting around the fireplace. They looked at Peter and asked him to sit down with them for a few moments. We're friends of your grandfather and aunts, they explained. Some of your friends in the underground have been caught. We're making plans to get them out of prison, but we have no weapons. Do you know where to find some? Peter knew at once that something was wrong. No underground worker would talk like this to a complete stranger. I'm sorry, he replied. I know nothing about weapons. If you don't mind, I have to leave. Peter found himself looking into the barrel of a pistol. He was in the hands of the Gestapo. The enemy had struck the hiding place where the Jews safe. Peter was taken to the police station with the rest of us. Lying among all the other prisoners, he could not help thinking, Lord, where were your angels? Yet every time he looked at Grandfather, he saw only peace on the face of the old man. Father was pale and weak, and Peter knew he might never see him again. But he heard Father's strong voice reading Psalm 91, and he was comforted. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastest at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. Psalm 91, 5-11 Boom is Dutch for tree. Two months later, Peter, Noli, and William were released from prison. Peter learned that his grandfather had passed away from the prison hospital to the glories of heaven. For weeks after, there was no news from Betsy and me. As the days dragged by, it became clear to the family that we would have much more severe punishment than the others. Then one morning, Noli burst into Peter's room with tears streaming down her face. Peter, she cried, we have just received news that both Corey and Betsy have been transported to a concentration camp in Germany. Father died in prison, and now I'm going to lose my two sisters. Peter was speechless. What could he say to comfort his mother? He knew how hard life would be for us in the concentration camp. When Noli left the room, he fell to his knees. Lord, give me a word from you. Show me your side of the situation. And he opened the Bible and read, Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not fear when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Jeremiah 17:78. With the open Bible in his hand, Peter ran downstairs to share the scripture with his mother. They both knew that God was working out his own perfect loving plan for Betsy and me. Over 30 years have passed since that day. Now looking back, we can see so much more of God's wisdom and love in his dealings with my family. A tree planted by the riverside does not just happen to be there. Someone planted and prepared its place and knew why the tree had to grow on that very spot. 
As I have recalled these incidents about Father, my heart has filled with gratitude. I saw the hand of the one who planted this family in Harlem, who kept it through the years of drought and suffering, fed it with his word, and caused it to bear fruit. And perhaps it is not without significance that the boom is Dutch for tree. Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem, Jerusalem, a place of sad memories. On the floor of the building are big, flat stones with the names of concentration camps upon them. Ashes from bodies found in each camp are buried under each stone. A dark picture of one of the darkest events of man's history. There is an avenue of trees outside the building called the Avenue of the Righteous. At the base of every tree is the name of a person who planted it. Non-Jews, at great risk, helped save Jewish lives during the war. In 1968, I was invited to plant a tree on that boulevard. There is a flame burning day and night in the building. It says, do not forget. I turned a handle and the flame burned brighter. A man sang a litany in memory of Father Betsy Villiam and William Sunkick, the four people in my family who died as a result of their work in saving Jews. I looked around me. Many Jewish children were standing on the balcony and official state representatives stood next to me. Was there ever such sadness as on the faces in Yad Vashem? My thoughts turned away from the people who had been killed to those who had been saved because God used my family, friends, and me. I heard my father's voice say, If I die in prison, it will be an honor to have given my life for God's ancient people. Sad joy entered my heart and I prayed, Dear Lord, by your Holy Spirit, show me things from your point of view. Was it possible to feel joy? To praise the Lord at such a sad moment? Was I the only one here who could praise the Lord? I saw high up in the building openings on four sides of the wall. Suddenly, hundreds of birds flew inside the hall. They sang, they chirped, they praised the Lord in their own. Father, Betsy, William, and Kick, you gave your lives for God's chosen people, I whispered. That day at Yad Vashem, I gave a talk about my father. I spoke of what he had meant to me to all of his family, and even to the strangers who saw God's love mirrored in the most difficult of circumstances. Here is a part of my talk. Some time ago, I had an accident on the street of my hometown, Harlem. A policeman helped me into a car and asked me my name. Corey Tinboom, I answered. Are you one of the Tinbooms whom we had to arrest 22 years ago? Yes, I am. I must explain that many good policemen stayed in their jobs during those times so they could help Jews and political prisoners. This particular policeman had been on duty during the time when my father and with all his children had to spend the night sitting on the floor of the police station. I will never forget that night the policeman told me. It seemed to me like it was a celebration instead of the beginning of so much suffering in prisons and concentration camps. I often tell people how your father was so calm and how he read Psalm 91 to everyone. When my father was arrested, he was very old and weak. I do not believe he would have lived very long if he had not been in prison. He was, after all, 84 years old. When we were arrested, he said to me, Corey, the best is yet to be, knowing that God had given him that assurance. For him, the best came ten days later when he went to be with his Lord. Jesus once said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. John 14:2. I remember Noli telling me we love the Jews because we can thank them for two greatest treasures. First of all, a book written by the Jews. It is the Bible, and we must thank Israel for it. 
It is a book which is almost bursting with good news and glorious promises. All its writers were Jews except Luke, but he was converted through a Jew. I want to thank you, the Jews, for this book, for the Bible has shown me the way to the second blessing, which Noli mentioned. It got me acquainted with my greatest friend. He was a Jew. On his divine side, he was the son of God, but on his human side, he was a Jew. And this friend is my Savior. What a joy it has been for me to be in Jerusalem, the reunited city, now entirely in Israeli hands. However, we were all conscious of the fact that times are very serious, not only in this country, but for the whole world. And what a joy it is in this book. We see God's side of the history of the world. Many of you are expecting the Messiah to come, and so are we as Christians. We believe he is coming again, and he will do what he promised. I will make all things new. Then the whole earth would be covered with the knowledge of the Lord, like the waters cover the bottom of the sea. Hallelujah, the best is yet to be. I wish you shalom, shalom, shalom. Appendix, Casper Ten Boom. May 18, 1859 to March 10, 1944. It is not an easy thing to give a review of the life of such a greatly loved Harlemner in just one small book. Suffice it, therefore, to give at the end, without further comment, a list of the positions which he occupied during his lifetime. Let that list speak for itself in indicating the extent to which he gave himself to the community, and let us limit ourselves principally in these few lines to his personality. It can be truly said that even after his death, he lives on with many who worked with him or had been in contact with him in any way at all. His optimism, his cordiality, his warm interest, and especially his strong faith made it possible for him to be a blessing to many. Whenever one went to the 19 Beelstraat, one would meet new people who had to come ask Harlem's grand old man for help or advice. He always spoke to them very kindly and never gave the impression that he was in a hurry. His home became an oasis for people in trouble who need a refreshing word of encouragement. This was especially the case during the dark years of the war. In his house, countless people, especially Jews, found a hiding place from the relentless enemy. When anybody pointed out to him the great danger which threatened him night and day, he always answered quietly, It will be an honor for me, if it is necessary, to die for God's chosen people, the Jews. These were not merely words. They were proven by his arrest, which ended in his lonely death in prison. His death is tragic. But if he could still speak, he would point out to us that we must not keep looking at the tragic side of his death, because for him it meant entering into glory. Although he intensely enjoyed all the good things of this life, he knew it was only transitory happiness. To use his own words, the best is yet to be. His life here is ended now, and it remains for us to be very thankful that we got to know this lovable man in so many different places, and he was himself wherever he was. He will be an example to many for a long time. Bob Van Walton, and that was Noli's son. Positions which Mr. Timboom occupied during his lifetime. Co-founder and chairman of the Harlem Christian Primary School Committee. President and commissioner of the Nassau Bank. Vice chairman, department of the small business, chairman of commerce and factories, Harlem. Nestor, for 17 years, of the Chamber of Commerce and Factories, Harlem, Chairman of the International Organization of the Union Holergier, Watchmaker Society, 
chairman of the Christian Tradespeople Society, Boaz, and chairman of the Tradespeople Center Council since 1923, committee member of Labor Council, committee member of the Christian Protestant Society for the Rehabilitation of Prisoners, Bill Strat Society and the Anti-Revolutionary Political Association, chairman of the Harlem branch of the Dutch Watchmaker Society, committee member of the Cooperative Purchase Society of Dutch Watchmakers, editor of the Watchmakers magazine, Christian Huggins, co-founder of the Harlem Volunteer Civil Guard and co-founder of the Orange Nassau Institute, Harlem Secondary School. He wrote Memories of an Old Watchmaker and the Exact Regulation of Precision Watches. The international edition of the Reader's Digest made a condensed version of the book The Hiding Place, which tells the story of Castor Tinboom and his family. Before they did this, they went to Holland to obtain information on whether Mr. Tinboom really was a good watchmaker. It would be understandable that Corey, his daughter, would have loved him, thought he was, but was he really? They went to the Dutch Association of Watchmakers and received this information. Casper Tinboom was known not only in Holland as a good watchmaker, but also known internationally in a large part of Europe. He was called the best watchmaker in the Netherlands. He was a student of Ho, in his time, the best clockmaker in the world. His clock, the Ho too, can still be seen in Leiden. The following is a translation of an old Harlem newspaper clipping. The article was written by a local reporter and appeared under a photograph of Casper Tinboom. Captured by our lens, Mr. C. Tinboom. Mr. C. Tinboom is a very well-known personality in our town, and not only in trade circles. He was born 18th May 1859 in Harlem, and has therefore now reached the age of 75, though one would never guess it, seeing him walking the streets of Harlem. He was the recipient of many tokens of appreciation when he reached the age of 75. He is respected in Harlem as a worker for the interests of the tradespeople and also an able watchmaker. He is the chairman of the Christian Tradespeople Society, Boaz, and a member of the Tradespeople Central Council for Harlem and the surrounding area. The esteem in which other members of his trade hold Mr. Timboom can be seen in his chairmanship of the Dutch branch of the Union Watchmaker Society. And in fact, he has been the editor of the Watchmakers magazine, Christian Huggins, for the last 30 years. Mr. Timboom is the nester of the Chamber of Commerce. His patriarchal figure graces the chairman's seat of that body once a year when the chamber holds its first meeting of the year. When the meeting opens, he makes one of his good short speeches, always seasoned with humor, of which he knows the secret. Mr. Timboom is an industrious, able, and worthy man. About the author. When Corrie Timboom was in her early 50s, she and her family joined the Dutch underground Christian resistance movement during World War II. Corrie's autobiography, The Hiding Place, describes those war years, is a book and a movie that millions of people worldwide are familiar with. Well, that is the end of the book, and we will be reading the next section is In My Father's House, and that too is by Corrie Timboom. It's a story of Corey's years prior to the commencement of World War II. And it goes on to say that Corey was a timid girl when she was young, growing up in a busy household with three older siblings, several aunts, a mother and a father, wholly devoted to God and their family. From an early age, Corey felt sympathy and compassion for those who were hurting. With a solid foundation in God's word instilled by her father, Casper Tinboom, a watchmaker, Corey spent her life reaching out to others with God's love and the gospel message. 
in my father's house is a testament to how God prepared one family through a father's faithfulness to his Savior and the word of God for the most sacrificial service a family could do. Beginning in the years before Corey was born, this book paints a beautiful picture of the family from which today's families can glean valuable and eternal lasting lessons. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.